All right, as Adam McLeod said earlier, um, I had the opportunity to speak in light of Adam Benson and Lauren being out of town, and what a privilege it is to be able to come to you this morning. Um, we have the opportunity to go back through, as Adam suggested that we do, and just recap the things that we've learned in Romans. Like I said, that might think, well, why would we need to do that? But I think it's extremely important that we take the opportunity to, to, to even go down further than what we already have. We've taken 16 weeks to go through a chapter a week of Romans, which, if you don't know, that's, that's not a lot of weeks to go through Romans. I was listening to a summary of chapters 1 through 7 by John Piper this week, and he had spoken 104 or 105 messages from Romans 1 to, 1 to 7, from 98 to 2002. And so he was, he was summing it up in seven chapters in one message, but that was after 102 messages. So I have the impossible task of summarizing the entire book of Romans in the time that we have today. So feel encouraged that uh, in some ways I'm not going to be able to cover everything. But we do want to hit the high points. We do want to hit the things that we've already learned because we, are, we studied Romans coming out of the book of Jude. And if you guys remember, we studied in Jude that we have a responsibility to contend for the faith. We have to contend for the faith. We have to stand in the gap, contend for the faith. But then we moved right into Romans and said, well, what is the faith? What is the gospel that we're supposed to contend for? Well, we went straight into the book of Romans because it is the, it is the most concise, systematic, detailed explanation of the gospel in the New Testament. We also want to study this today and kind of go back and, and re-examine this because as we studied in Romans 6, as we'll mention when we get there, Adam called us to the importance of knowing the depths of the truths of Scripture but more than just agreeing with them. Remember he said we could sit into a, in a sermon and hear a lot of things spoken and say, yeah, I agree with that. And two, he said you could sit in two or three sermons on justification and say, I agree with everything that you said. But if you can't carry on a conversation for at least 15 minutes on justification yourself, then you don't know it. And so we want to provide every opportunity for us to be able to know these truths in the book of Romans so that we can walk away with them, like he said next, no reckon them things, those things to be true for us so that we can yield ourselves to them. And so he had said over and over, no, reckon and yield. No, reckon and yield. And so I kind of want to add to that, contend at the end. We're called to contend for the faith. That's what we started off doing at the very beginning. We have to know this. We have to reckon it to be true for ourselves and yield our lives to it so that we can contend for the faith. So as, if, if you guys remember, we started... 16 weeks ago on the introduction to Romans. And so I'm just going to kind of give a brief thing. I printed you up some notes. It's really small because there's a lot of details there. You don't have a lot of room to write down anything that you might hear that needs to be written down, but you can use the back. But what we do want to do is just kind of cover the very top headings of each chapter so that if you're leading a new believer through the book of Romans, you'll be able to have one concise little piece of paper that says, hey, this is where you would go to learn about condemnation of the immoral man. This is where you're going to go to hear about the life and the faith of Abraham. This is where you're going to go about hearing about how we're to live the life in the Spirit. So obviously in Romans, as we learned, Paul wrote it as, a, as an opportunity to pass on apostolic teaching to the church in Rome. So just to kind of set us some context, just to, by way of reminder, there's a church in Rome. He wasn't sure that he was going to be able to go there physically. So he wrote the book of Romans so that he could pass on apostolic teaching because he wasn't sure if he'd ever make it there physically. And he also wanted to use Rome as a base of operations by which he could go to Spain. And he wanted to continue to see the gospel spreading through Spain. But Romans in and of itself is a timeless statement of the Christian faith. 
in the most detailed, systematic presentation of the gospel. In these 16 chapters, it's the most detailed, systematic presentation of the gospel. And if you think about it, Adam said that it is the operating system of the New Testament. Do you remember that? How he said that Romans is the operating system, much like we have operating systems that make apps work, that help, help apps function the way that they need to. Because we have Romans as the operating, of the new, operating system of the New Testament, we can understand the other teachings of Scripture and other books because of what we're given in Romans. Romans is, is silent on some issues, like Adam said. It's, it's silent on second coming issues, and it's silent on Lord's Supper issues. Um, but he said that we go to other passages for those teachings, like in First and Second Thessalonians, to hear about the second coming. We go to First Corinthians to hear about um, the Lord's Supper. But ultimately, as the foundation for what the gospel is, we go to Romans. From Romans, we learn about the dire problem that all of us have in the sense that we stand before God guilty of having sin in our hearts and guilty of treason. And it answers the age-old question, as I spoke in just justification talk. Remember, there's a question. If we're all guilty, how in the world can I be made right with God? That's the question. How can we be made right with God? The book of Romans answers that. So at the top of your notes, if you got them, I wanted us all to look at the major theme and just take it slowly. I printed it there for you. The major theme of the book of Romans is God's righteousness is revealed in Christ, and it is acquired by faith. And that comes from Romans 1, 16 through 17. And this is what I prayed in our prayer after the Stapleton video. The gospel, he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So Romans is all about God's righteousness being revealed. That's what the point of Paul writing this. But as we see in chapter 1 as we're going to move into there, there's something else that's revealed first, and that's God's wrath. So also underneath that in your notes, we also wanted to make sure that you had the definition of the gospel that Adam gave us. The gospel is God's plan to save man from his sin, through Christ, by faith, for his glory forever. So I know it's kind of weird to do this, but I want us to say this together because we really want to get this in our minds and hold on to it. So let's say the gospel. God's plan to save man from his sin, through Christ, by faith, for his glory forever. Remember, Adam gave us, if you want to remember it in five, God, man, sin, Christ, response. So a faithful presentation of the gospel with our friends and coworkers and our family includes God, our condition before him as man, the problem of sin, the solution of Christ, and our response to him. And here's the outline of the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 3 all deal with condemnation. And it is about wrath being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. And we're going to see really quickly who all falls into that category. Chapters 3 through 8 is all about salvation, righteousness being revealed. Chapters 9 through 11 on vindication, the wisdom of God being revealed. And 12 through 16, exhortation, the will of God revealed. So, first in your notes on Romans 1, let's write this down. Romans 1, as the heading, is the condemnation of the immoral man. Romans 1 is all about the condemnation of the immoral man. As we said up here, Romans 1 through 3 is all about condemnation, period. 
But this specifically has to do with condemnation being revealed against somebody that is immoral, someone that, le- that lives a life that's detestable to, to the ways of God. And God's wrath is revealed against this per- person. You remember what we said wrath was, God's wrath was? Yes, God's appropriate or proper response to man's sin. But don't hear that and just kind of set it aside because what I, what I heard before Adam taught us that really neat way to remember God's wrath is I thought of wrath and fury and like other passages, fire that consumes the adversaries. And whenever we say, yeah, wrath is God's appropriate response to man's sin, that is very true. It is very appropriate for God being a good and just and holy judge to be rightfully angry and, 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 and furious towards the sin of the world. But I think that sometimes when we define wrath as that, we can kind of lose sight of what wrath really is. And God's wrath is revealed. It is fury. He's not some temperamental God that just gets angry. He has a rightful, proper response to man's sin, and it is his wrath. And it is revealed from heaven, as in chapter 1, verse 18 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And as we studied in Romans 1, there was general revelation, and we want you to hold on to that too. General revelation is God revealing himself to all people at all places at all times. And God's special revelation, as we talked about, was God revealing himself to specific people, specific places, specific times. So special revelation, an example of that would be in Hebrews, where it said long ago and many times and places, God spoke to us through prophets, through dreams, and through visions. But now he's spoken to us through his son. All of those are examples of special revelation. What general revelation is, as we see in Romans 1, is God revealing that there are aspects of his divine nature and his eternal power that are clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So people are without excuse because they see the aspects of that, that there is a God, and they choose, like verse 21 says, for all that they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Claiming to be wise, they became fool and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. So this, this chapter 1, Think about it. It's all about condemnation of the immoral man. God gives them over to impurity. He gives them over to dishonorable passions. And he gives them over to a debased mind. They fail to know, worship, and obey God, and they suppress the truth. And Adam showed us that when our worship problem is wrong, that's when lifestyle problem happens as well. And specifically in this, a debased mind, the dishonorable passions, all led to living out their lives in a sexually immoral lifestyle. But these people know what they are doing is wrong. The problem here is that they, they approve of it, and they approve of it in others. Listen to what it says. These people are filled with all manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, and boastful. Down further it says, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. So the condemnation of the immoral man is revealed in chapter 1. So Paul is, is laying forth a case like a prosecuting attorney. He's saying, okay, we're about to talk about God's wrath being revealed. And it's revealed against everyone. But just so that everybody's on the same page, we'll start with the person who doesn't know God personally in a, in a special revelation type of way, but yet knows his, his laws as it's written on his heart and disobeys that and continues to exercise his passions in this debased way of thinking. And he knows what he does is deserving of death. 
But he, he does it anyway, and he approves of others who does it as well. He's guilty before God. So can we see how somebody who may um, be a heathen in the way that they live their lives is deserving of God's wrath? Maybe. And that's why Paul moves directly into chapter 2, because it's possible that for the first time these people heard this, they're hearing this case being brought up. Okay, here are these people, and God's wrath is revealed against the unrighteousness of these people. And there were potentially members of that church that were listening and saying, yeah, but I'm, I'm not like that. I'm not an immoral person. I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I don't make decisions like that. So chapter 2, let's write this down, because it leaves us with the question, what about good people? Romans 2 was all about condemnation of the moral man and the religious man. Chapter 1, immoral man. Chapter 2, condemnation of the moral man, religious man. Wrath is revealed against the moral and religious man. Listen to chapter 2, verses 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So remember, Adam said, the immoral man knows what he's doing is wrong, and he approves of it in others. But then there's this moral man that looks at him and says, hey, I know what you're doing is wrong, and that's definitely not what you should do. But he fails to see it in himself. So he says the problem is not of him seeing sin. He's rightly seeing sin, but he's failing to see sin in himself. Does that make sense? So Romans 2, we, we've heard this before. The moral man is just as guilty before God because he's guilty of the same thing in his heart. And then he goes on further down and he talks about the religious man is still guilty before God as well. And this is somebody else that might be, have been sitting in that congregation as well saying, well, I'm not an immoral man and I'm not just claiming to be somebody that um, is living a good life. I'm a Hebrew. I have special revelation. I have what's needed to know what God desires of me. I have the law. I'm good to go. Right, Paul? And he says, no, sir, you're not good to go. Um, so in chapter 2, he finishes that, up, it, that indictment by saying, For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by it as well. So Adam talked to us about how the rule that God uses is how much knowledge do we have. That's how God's judging. He's judging. If he judged based off of works, then everyone would be found guilty. And so the, the Hebrew who had the law, he was still exercising out of his knowledge, and was yet still failing to uphold the law completely. And as we know from the book of James in the New Testament, it says, if you've failed to keep the whole law in every point, and you just failed in one point, you're guilty of all of it. So he's setting this up. You're guilty, immoral man. You're guilty, the moral man. And you're guilty, religious man as well. And so Adam char charged us and challenged us, don't let ever your, your morals or your good deeds make you feel right before God and right standing before God. And don't also allow your religious heritage or the way that you've been brought up to ever make you feel confident before God because it's never been about those things. And so then also we go to Romans 3 then, which was condemnation of the world, salvation through Christ. So you can write that down, Romans 3. Condemnation of the world, salvation through Christ. I know we're speeding through this, but we're just trying to get all the information in one place. Paul's basically saying, as, as, as we were taught, that if you did not see yourself in any of these previous three categories, I'm just going to go ahead as the prosecuting attorney and lay down the final indictment that the entire world is guilty before God. It doesn't matter who you are. And this is where we, we learn about things such as depravity. 
depravity being that we are ultimately and, and fully unable and incapable of being good in and of ourselves. Even though we would agree and say that there are other people that may be more sinful than others, there's different levels of that horizontally. Vertically, everyone is guilty of not being able to uphold God's standard of perfection. So because of that, the whole world stands guilty before God because of sin. Listen to what he says in 3.9. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So as he's laying this out, he can imagine that there might be somebody that says, well, what if I did just enough good things to maybe get out of this? Okay, now you've convinced me. I'm guilty before God. I need to do something to find appeasement with God. And he adds 19 in right before he goes into the good news just to make sure he cuts that thinking off really quickly. And he says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so we talked about what sin was. And sin, do you guys remember what sin was? Talked about it being what? Yes, to missing the mark. It's, it's failing to hit that mark of God's standard of perfect righteousness. Uh, Piper, in the thing that I listened to this week, he talked about to bring it all practically for us to think about. Sin is the glory of God not honored. It's the holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, and the person of God not loved. This is sin. So you can see all of us fall short of that in some regard. In all of those regards, have we fully honored and glorified God all that he deserves? Do we really fully reverence all that he is in his holiness? Do we fully admire the greatness that he deserves? No, we have all fallen short of the glory of God and earned what we deserve, and that's condemnation. So Paul is writing this out. The immoral man is condemned. The moral man is condemned. The religious man is condemned. By the way, you didn't see yourself in any of those other categories. Everybody on earth is condemned. And if he just ended there, there would be no hope. There would be absolutely no hope. But he didn't. He didn't end there. And that's the good news of the gospel. God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ for his glory forever. So this comes the part, it's like really condemnation is like 1 to 3a, and salvation is 3b to chapter 8. This is where things turn. He's laying out that case. He's allowing all of us to see our rightful place before a holy God. And then he says in verse 21, But the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So it's been revealed. The righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So he introduces the work of Christ into the, the, the 
history of redemption right at this moment and says, look, here is the way that we do receive righteousness. This is how it's possible. This is beginning to answer the question that you may have started having in your mind. I'm guilty. I'm feeling the weight of the wrath of God bearing down on me like a billion ton weight. And I'm, and I'm squirming trying to think of how can I escape this? And I try to run in my mind to the law, to works, and Paul's crushing me there saying no one will be justified by that. So there is no way I can be justified before God. There's no way that I can be saved. And I think that that's exactly what Paul wanted us to get to. So that he could say, but, aside from you, apart from you, the righteousness of God has been revealed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That is why we gather. That is why we are what we are today. Is because Jesus has accomplished what we could never accomplish. The gospel unites us. And we're here today because we celebrate the fact that Christ rose from the dead, confirming that the life that he lived was perfect enough and that the death that he died was satisfactory enough to cover our penalty. And so he goes into that Romans 3, but the righteousness is revealed apart from the law. Adam taught us about forbearance. You could write this down if you find room. Forbearance was a term that we wanted to remember. Um, It was the delaying of punishment through the ages so that he could punish Christ, or punish sin on the cross. Forbearance was the delaying of punishment through the ages so that he could punish sin on the cross. This is the example that he gives that Adam was teaching that God could have punished sin immediately and done away with it as people sin and just wrapped this all up. But he decided in his love and in his grace to wait and kind of pay forward for that sin on Christ on the cross and gave us all an opportunity to be able to receive that righteousness by delaying the punishment so that he could pour it forth on Christ. That is the love of God that is evident in that. That was forbearance. But we also learned about propitiation. Does anybody remember what propitiation means? Propitiation. Big word. There you go. That is the turning away or the satisfaction of God's wrath. And so that is... That is a huge term that I know when you read through this passage and you're saying, hey, they're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood. You're just like, oh my goodness, there's so much going on. But that's, that's true. There's so much going on here. That, that one verse is, is so brilliantly uh, precious because it talks about the reconciliation that we, that we have with God. But it talks about the propitiation the satisfaction of the wrath. So the wrath that we've been talking about through 1, 2, 3, A, that has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath that we feel the weight we cannot escape from. How is this going to be dealt with? He says Christ was put forth as a propitiation. He was the satisfaction of God's wrath. That is, that is immensely precious, that wrath is turned into, therefore, favor towards us. It's not that God said, okay, well, Christ will take care of the punishment. Now, just stand over in the corner because you you're not precious to me or anything, but you're off the hook because Christ did it. No, Christ so perfectly did it, and, and trans, he gave us his perfection so much that God can look at us as what he wanted to originally look at us in the beginning, as his children. We're not marred by sin anymore because Christ has covered that for us. And then also the work of Christ accomplished redemption. And redemption meant God setting us free from bondage by paying the price for our release. Redemption. 
God sets us free from bondage by paying the price for our release. It's really important. I know these things you've heard before. I know you're like, okay, Tyson's going over stuff we've heard for the last 18 weeks. I realize that. But keep in your mind that the point that we're doing this is so that we can truly know it. Like, I'm not just talking about these things because I had to study something to be able to teach you guys today. I've taken it upon myself. I really want to know these things so that when I'm at Chick-fil-A and I'm talking to my security guard friend and we're eating lunch, I can talk to him about what Christ did for us as a propitiation for us. I can talk to him about what redemption means. I can talk to him about what reconciliation means. These big words that I'm sure the lost world hears all the time and just is turned off by, we have a responsibility to know them. And then beyond knowing them just as head knowledge to bring it down to our heart, to yield ourselves to that, to reckon it true to ourselves and then submit our lives to it. So as we're going through these things, just if you don't know them or I'm speaking too fast, just take a note, redemption, propitiation, these are things that you need to know. We need to know so that we can contend for the faith. We don't want to be guilty of just hearing sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon and just coming as people that just come to watch like a movie. And I was convicted by that when I picked up 16 pages of notes from Adam. I thought about all the hours that went into preparing these messages for us. And what do they do after I write them down on Sunday? They slip into my front cover here and they sit there. And so I was thankful for the opportunity to have to go back through them. But I realized that I must have missed it in Romans 6 with the whole, whole no reckon and yield it thing because I didn't take that to heart. And so I'm standing today as one of you, not as some leader, but as one of you saying, hey, let's, let's do this together. Let's band together. Let's know these things because we are, we are supposed to be contending for the faith, the faith that is going to be tested from within. As we learned at the very end of Romans, Paul talks about, or in, even in Ephesians, Paul talks about how false teaching will rise up from within the church. We've got to be prepared. It doesn't necessarily mean that you know that the gospel is God's plan to save man through sin by Christ for his faith forever and can say it perfectly. But we've got to include all of these aspects of it. Christ deals with our guilt problem and our bondage problem in chapter 3. So when you're thinking about talking to an unbeliever, you can walk them through Romans 1 to 3 and convince them as, and be very personal because I've noticed if you come up to somebody and say, hey, you're guilty, and if you think you're good, let me show you why you're not. That's not going to work really well for them. What works for me is being like, listen, i got to tell you something great. But before I can tell you great, i got to tell you what I was taught through Scripture about my condition before the Father. Let me show you how I thought that I could be good enough through my works and what Scripture says that about myself. And talk about yourself. Talk about in the sense, this is how condemned I felt. This is the weight of the wrath that I had. But this is the good news. Now, where are you at? Where are you at on these issues? Where do you stand with the Lord? So we talked about justification. Does anybody remember what justification means? I hope you do. Right. That's an easy, short one. To be declared righteous. I had a whole Sunday sermon on that, which we examined that in detail, and we showed that it was a declaration of righteousness. It's not a, a making righteous. God doesn't look at us and say, okay, now I'm going to, uh, I've made you righteous, so you can stand before me because you are internally righteous in and of yourself. No, it's Christ's righteousness is applied to our account. He views us through the lens of Christ's perfect life. So we are not inherently righteous on our own. He doesn't come in and magically change us. He applies the work of Christ to our account. Now we do become more and more like Christ and more and more holy, but we'll get to that. That hasn't happened yet. That's sanctification. 
The point is, everyone is guilty before God, but anyone can now be saved through faith. So this leads to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, we're still in salvation, righteousness being revealed. And this, this blank there for you is the example of justification. So we're talking about, we've got to be justified. Paul's laying out this case. If you want to stand right before God, you have to be declared righteous. And here's the way. Here's the, here's the person of Christ who came and made it possible. And then he says, it's available to be received by faith. So you might have somebody that says, well, that, sounds, that's, that doesn't sound right. I'm a Jew. I'm a Hebrew. I'm, a, I'm sitting here listening to this. I know about the importance of the law. I know I should be upholding it. Um, and I'm wrongly thinking, even in my mind, that I can be right with God by upholding it. How, how can people receive righteousness through faith? Wasn't it different with our forefathers? Didn't they do things to be saved? Paul anticipates these things, and he says, absolutely not. I'm going to give you an example of justification by faith. And he goes to Romans chapter 4, and who does he use? Abraham. Abraham. An example of someone who is saved through faith. The life of Abraham showed that he was saved by faith and not by his works or his obedience. Do you remember the example that we can know that, how we can know that? What about Abraham happened before the other thing? Right. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that was before he was given the sign of circumcision later on in the book of Genesis. So the Jews in that time were looking and saying, hey, we value this. And it was valuable, but they were taking it in the wrong regard and saying, this is how we're counted righteous. And Paul's saying, no, 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 back up and look. Paul believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. And because he was righteous, internally, God gave him a sign, an outward sign, to show something that had already become an inward reality. So he shows that all people have been saved in the past through the same way. He's not introducing some new, new doctrine. He does mention that law pays the wages. If you follow that, it'll pay you death. And Adam said that that depends on man's performance. But the gospel gives promises, which depends on God's performance. Paul is saying receiving righteousness has always been about trusting in promises, not obeying the law. That's not the purpose of the law. This is what he says in 4.13. For the promise of Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And at the end of chapter 4 he says, But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So we're talking about justification, the need to be justified. Jesus' life and his death were, were perfect and satisfactory enough that God raised him from the dead for our justification. But it's acquired by faith, and that's no different. That's no different than it ever has been in the past. And the promise that Abraham would have offspring that would be heirs of this promise, we're that offspring when we come to Ab- not to Abraham, when we come to Christ through faith. We become children of that promise. So that leads us to Romans 5. And this in your blank you can write down as the two, two Adams. And this is where you're going to take somebody whenever they, like I've experienced, say, you know, I... 
I might have sinned on my own, you know, all this stuff, but this original sin that you're talking about, like, I'm not, I'm not tracking with that. I'm not tracking. How could somebody in a garden, you know, thousands of years ago do something that I have to pay for? How, how, how does that work? So you take them to Romans 5 to talk about the two Adams. Before he gets into that, though, he talks about how we have been justified by faith. If that's true, we have peace with God. So this is huge. Don't miss this. The wrath that we're talking about being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men and the realization that we're all included in that. But then the hope that there is a way that God's given us Christ that is the satisfaction or the propitiation of that wrath and that it's received by faith just like it always has been. And now there's Abraham in this example. Yes, I'm tracking with you. Romans 5, he says, Therefore, if you've been justified through faith, you have peace with God. Peace with God. This is, this is something that we take for granted so often, that we have peace with God. Do you ever stop and think about that? The fact that you can know, because of Christ, you can have peace with God. You do not have to fear the wrath that's reserved and being stored up for the ungodly, because Christ has done something that you could never do. And so he goes into that in Romans 5, and he talks about the two Adams. But before that, Adam told us about reconciliation is another term, and imputation. Anybody want to take a stab at reconciliation? Not the exact wording, just the idea of it. What does it mean to be reconciled? There you go, Dave. That's exactly right. The removal of enmity and restoration of fellowship between two parties. Um, really, again, really give yourself over to knowing these terms. Reconcile. And imputation. Dave, you got that too? Yes. Imputation was to reckon to one's account or thinking of it as belonging to someone else when it doesn't really. Imputation, to reckon to one's account or thinking of it belonging to someone. This is an appropriate time, I guess, for me because in, our, in my sermon on justification, I left off a great illustration that Wayne Grudem gave in his systematic theology book. And he was talking about how something is imputed to one's account. And he gave this example of it's like you going to a job and working to earn a paycheck and then dying, right? And then your wife, because you're married, goes to pick up that check. She did not put in any effort to earn what it is that she's going to be able to receive, but it's counted to her account. And she, all she has to do to, to receive that is to reach out and take it. And so in some ways he was saying, you know, this is a human example, but we're breaking it down, showing that she didn't earn it, but because of the relationship that she had being in unity with her husband, she gets to receive the benefits of what he earned by simply reaching out and taking what he did. She doesn't add any, anything extra to the, the amount of what was earned by taking it. She's simply taking what has been accomplished. And so he was talking about how imputation is when God reckons something to our account that's not ours, but it belongs to us. It rightly belongs to us because of the marriage or the union that we have with Christ. Does that kind of make sense? Does that kind of help bring it together? It helps for me, and I was sad I left it out that day. But that's what imputation is. So think about it. Imputation, I'll just be honest with you, is that's where I spend a lot of my time when I'm talking to people about the gospel. I'm not throwing out big terms. I'm not trying to sound smart. 
But what I am trying to do is talk about the great exchange. And I tell people, do you want to hear about some great exchange that God provides? And that's where, remember, we drew the circles you know, on, the, on the board. And we talked about, you know, there's a circle here with negative marks in it. There's a circle here that's neutral. And there's a circle with positive. We don't need just our negative marks erased because that just leaves us in a state of neutrality. We have to be found in the positive. We have to be righteous. We have to have righteousness. Well, Christ came and he took upon himself the sin of us, and he gave us the righteousness that he earned. And that's when we put those things and we swapped it over, God's able to view us through the righteousness that, God, that Jesus earned. And he's able to punish Christ because he's viewing him through the sin that we earned. Remember that great exchange? So imputation is huge. It's the gospel. Okay, so these, these terms are not just meant to be big to confuse us or to be in... Uh, to be in Scripture, to cause us to stumble over them. They're meant for us to know them so that we can reckon these things to be true for ourselves, so that we can yield ourselves to them, so that we can contend for the faith. Adam in the garden was the first Adam. He, as our representative, earned death. That's why in some ways, or in all ways, Jesus, as our second Adam, the better Adam, earned righteousness for us. He's a better representative Adam earned death for the whole world, and death reigned through Adam. But Romans chapter 5 shows us that Jesus earned righteousness for all who would believe, because life reigns through Christ. 5.18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. That's all it took. That's all it took for Adam. One trespass. Because it's treason. Sin is not trivial, it's treason. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness of Christ leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So Christ is the second and better Adam, and that's a great place to take someone to talk to them about how Adam is our representative and has earned that sin for us. But Christ as our representative has earned something we could never earn, and that's how we get in. That's how we are able to stand before God because we're declared righteous because of a real righteousness. He doesn't just put on new shades to view us through a different perspective. He's a good judge. He has to punish sin. Righteousness is still the way in. So the only way that we get in is having our guilt removed and having a righteousness applied. And both of those things we could never do, especially by keeping the law. So Paul's writing that to correct that mindset. Romans 6, let's write this down. Salvation dead to sin Alive to God. Salvation. Dead to sin, alive to God. This was the chapter that I, uh, the sermon that I actually posted on The City a couple weeks ago saying, you need to go back and listen to this one. And I would still encourage you, you need to go back and listen to Romans 6. It's very important because in light of this, he's setting up, Paul's still setting up the example and the argument. Hey, this is where we are. This is how you can be in. This is what, peace that you can have because of Christ. This is the representative actions that he did on your behalf. Here we are. You're in. Now what? Romans 6 says, you're supposed to now consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. It's like the heading says, dead to sin and alive to God. It describes us being dead to sin and enslaved now to God. We're free from sin to be in bondage to another, to the Lord. We cannot enjoy sin and salvation. And this is where sanctification comes in. And Adam taught us about Adam McLeod taught us about sanctification. Does anybody 
besides him remember what sanctification means? There you go. In its simplest terms, like Jesse said, it's the process of being made like Christ. The, uh, the definition that he gave us is the progressive work between believers and the Holy Spirit by which we become more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ in our actual lives. So it's the process. It's a, it's a partnership process between believers and the Holy Spirit by which we become more and more free from sin and more and more like Jesus. But this is a thing that we have an active and a passive role as he taught us. There's a, like Philippians says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you work it out. You have a responsibility to get up and be active and seek to put to death the old deeds of the flesh. You get up. But at the same time, there's a passive trusting and depending on God because he's the one that's working in you, sanctification. We're saved by grace through faith. And we're sanctified by the same thing. We don't, we're not perfected in the faith by then trying to be obedient to the law. The law couldn't save us in the first place. It was only meant to show us how we could never be saved by the law. So why would we go on and say, well, now we'll be perfected by the law? The law is good, but it wasn't intended to bring righteousness. We're to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Sanctification, that's where it comes up. The Holy Spirit empowers us, but we have a role to play. We're to consider ourselves dead to sin. This is something that Adam pointed out. Justification is the same for all believers. We all experience justification the same way. It doesn't matter where you are in life. When you turn to faith in Christ, you're counted righteous the exact same. But sanctification is different. We're all in different stages of life. We're all reckoning and yielding and contending to different degrees. So we're all struggling in different levels. But that's okay because it's a lifelong process by which we are being transformed. The key to understanding being dead to sin and alive to Christ is to understand we have escaped the bondage to sin through Christ. We're to consider ourselves dead and can now live victorious lives. So this is for all of us who seem to be defeated by our ongoing sin. We're to continue to submit our minds to know and yield and and reckon these things to be true. That we are dead to this sin that once enslaved us. We were enslaved to this. We were wrapped up on a pole of it like wrapped up with chains that could never be broken, but Christ came in and broke them. So we're, we're free to walk away from that. Do we still run back to it and wallow in some of the same things? Yes. But that's, that's why Paul's pleading here. Consider yourselves dead to that. That is dead to you. You do not have to be enslaved to that anymore. In fact, you're not. If you're in Christ, you're free from it. You're not enslaved. That's Romans six nineteen through 22. This is how he concluded this. He said, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. But just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. The effort you put forth to give yourself over to your sinful passions, the effort's good. Just submit yourself to righteousness in the same way. So don't give yourself to these old ways. Submit your members to the Lord for righteousness. And this led right into Romans 7 because as we're following the logic, okay, you're to be considered dead to sin and alive to God, but I'm a Hebrew in the room or I know a lot of, I'm a Gentile that's been around the law and I know these things, so I try to go back continually to that to be able to find further victory from sin. And Paul says, that's not, that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. There's a right way and a wrong way to pursue sanctification. So Romans 7 heading is salvation, understanding the law. 
understanding the law. There's a right way and a wrong way, understanding the law. The wrong way is trying to go back to the law to be sanctified. We're justified apart from the law. We are not sanctified by the law. We're sanctified apart from it as well. We are set free from the law and not under the requirements anymore. And this is seen in the very beginning part of 7. This is where he says, For if a married woman is bound by law to her husband while she lives, if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So if Sarah and I are married, which we are, she nor I are free to go and marry someone else because we're bound by the covenant of the law of marriage. But should I pass away, that death breaks that agreement and Sarah is free to go marry and be belonging to someone else. That's where Paul's bringing in a human example here saying, hey, the death that Christ died, he died to set you free, to set you free. So the, the requirements that were holding you tight to sin and to death have now been broken because Christ died. Now you're free to belong to another. You're free, but don't run back to your old ways of thinking. We're set free now from keeping the law as a list of rules to try to earn salvation. Instead, the motivation is to trust promises. We now believe promises behind God's law, and it naturally leads us to obey those laws. Not committing adultery is obeyed when we believe that God is something better promised for us. Remember when Adam said that? Not committing adultery is obeyed when we believe the promises behind it, not the law. So when I believe that God has promised that there is good for my family, the fact that my kids could be raised in a godly home where both parents are together, that my wife is here with me and has not left me. These things that are promised to me by not committing adultery are the better motivation that I should hold on to to obey the law as opposed to looking at the written law and trying to obey it in an effort to earn something. It's all about believing promises. It always has been. So this was the big perspective change where he challenged all of us. Have another perspective. Be renewed in your minds. And Paul will tell us that himself in chapter 12. But start thinking about this differently. You're not perfected by the law, so stop trying to run back to it. You're released from it. This is what Christ has done for us. The law is not evil. Let's clarify that. But we need to know the purpose of the law. God gave the law not so that we could obey it for salvation, but to show us how sinful we really are. The law is good, and it does what it's intended to do. It's to show us that there's nothing that we could ever do to earn the righteousness that we need. And you know this. But I'm asking you to reckon it to be true for you and to take up the effort to make this go from your head to your heart, or if it's not in your head yet, to put it there so that you can carry on these conversations with unbelievers. He also went into something that I'm not going to spend any time on where it was understanding... Past, uh, verses number 7 through 25, where Paul is speaking in that way of, I do some things that I do not want to do. I don't do things that I want to do. And he talks about there are different perspectives about who this person is, the man of sin here. But Adam ultimately taught us that he believes that it was somebody who had a misunderstanding of the law. And he challenged us to go back and study this on our own to determine where we fall in that spectrum. But either way, Adam said that we cannot view this as a mature Christian standpoint in that it is defeated. Obedience can be accomplished when the Holy Spirit is working in and through our lives. So it's not okay to get to a point where we say, ah, I'm, just, I'm still just struggling so bad, I guess I'm just going to have to 
you know, continue to struggle with this. Yes, it's true that we will always struggle with sin, but that defeated attitude is not okay. He says we cannot have that because we have been set free to live victorious life if we would submit ourselves to the Lord, if we are yielding to the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. So he's saying, do these things. Submit yourself over to them. And this led to Roman chapter 8. After this, we're going to hit really quickly just the rest of them. But the first 1 to 8 is Paul's outlining the whole thing. And this is salvation being secure in Christ. Secure in Christ. Salvation is secure in Christ. It flows out of chapter 6 through 8. He's saying, are we just supposed to wallow in sin until Jesus comes back then? Are we supposed to do that? And he says, no. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live in victory. Remember, if it's all about believing promises, well, this is the point in Romans in chapter 8 where he gives us promises to believe in. This is the place. It's full of promises. I know Piper talks about how if there's any chapter that he could encourage any of us to memorize, it would be that one. Because it is so full of the promises that we can hold on to that will then lead to a natural obedience of God's law. The ultimate promise is seen in the very first verse. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul's been laying this out for eight chapters, and he says, look, if you're in Christ, there's no condemnation for you. There's no condemnation. There's no fear of separation from Christ either. And so this is where it makes sense to then jump from all these promises from Romans 8 down to Romans 12. Okay, here you are. These are the promises. Hold on to them. Now, Numbers 12 through 16, I'm going to tell you how to live. This is the exhortation. But he puts in chapters 9 through 11. And does anybody remember why he does that? Why does Paul go to start talking about Israel and predestination and election and stuff like that? There was a charge that somebody might be able to bring up. The charge was, in essence, I'm sitting here, I'm listening to you, Paul. I'm hearing that you're supposed to be believing in promises and moving forward. I'm a part of the Christian faith. But I see Jews and, and, or my fellow kinsmen, whoever it was that was hearing this, not making it. Didn't God make promises to them in the, in the past? And they're not being fulfilled? Hasn't, isn't Israel being rejected now and the church coming in and taking over? How can I trust God's promises in Romans chapter 8 if I'm looking at the history of Israel and seeing that he's not been faithful to them? How can I trust in promises like that? He anticipates this again through, the, obviously, the Holy Spirit's enlightenment. And he inserts chapters 9. And chapter 9 is vindication, God's sovereignty. God is faithful in Israel's past. This is God's sovereignty. God is faithful in Israel's past. This chapter secured the promises of Romans 8. The greatest purpose of God's plan, Adam said, in salvation is that God receive glory, not that man receive salvation. So what Paul says is, hey, you guys are maybe potentially charging that he's not been faithful. He's let Israel go because he's not saving Israel. And this is where he starts to get into talking about, but you guys, you need to understand that he has always been faithful to save those whom he was supposed to save. That not all Israel is true Israel. And he goes through uh, example after example about how he has chosen, even in uh, Jacob and Esau, these, these two people from the same line of Abraham. If it was all about descendancy, both of these guys would be in, but one of them's not. One of them's a child of the promise. 
So Adam talks about how it wasn't because of anything that they had done right or wrong. It was because of God's purpose in salvation that it may continue that he moved in this way. In Romans chapter 9 is where he talks about God saving a remnant. That he's always been about saving a remnant out of this. So there were some tough issues that we talked about in 9. I encourage you to go back and listen to 9, 10, and 11 because that's where ideas of predestination and election comes out of. But he ultimately showed that if we are offended by hearing any of this type of stuff, it's probably because we've been presented with a bad presentation of one of these doctrines by someone in the past who have abused it, who have taken it out of context. And he's encouraged us, do not, um, do not hate the doctrine if you hate the presentation, but you have a responsibility to go back and figure out what's going on here. And he basically shows us that God is obligated, as he ended, he is obligated to be glorious, not universalistic. So the card that trumps, hey, everybody gets saved, is the card that says, hey, God gets the glory. And in this passage, it's hard to swallow, but God gets glory by showing mercy to some and not mercy to others. So God's obligated to be God and receive glory through this, but he's not obligated to be universalistic. And we start to then immediately say, but that's not fair. But let me remind you, the whole point of Romans 3 is to say, I'll tell you what's fair. What's fair is that every single person that's under God's wrath, which we've kind of said is the whole world, deserves to go to hell. So what's fair is for all of us to be condemned. That's what's fair. But God chooses to step in and bring grace for some. So I'm challenging you again. Go back and listen to it. Be challenged in the way that you think. But the only, way that we're, the only reason that we're offended, as he said, is if we believe that everyone has an equal opportunity for salvation. But what's important is that that's not what was supposed to be fair. What was fair is that God should have punished us all, but he chose not to. So go back through that. That's some, that's some tough stuff, but it led into Romans 10, which was vindication, man's responsibility. God is faithful and Israel's present. He's faithful in Israel's present. This chapter, it protects us from the hyperposition where we're tempted to sit back and watch God's plan unfold. So for the person that's listening, says, hey, I see that God's obviously been in this. He has been faithful. He's saving a remnant. There's a lot of wisdom going on. I'm just going to kind of sit back and let God do what he's going to do. And that's not the call that we're supposed to have. Chapter 10 talks about how we have a part to play in God's plan. And we're to be zealous about that. Remember we took the zeal gauge? Adam gave us a zeal gauge and said, how zealous are you in the life of Sav Hope um, to go forth and take the message of salvation to everyone? So that, again, just for Romans chapter 10, was vindication, man's responsibility. That's where it talks about how can, how can they be saved unless someone goes. The, the people in Vanuatu don't read Scripture in their own language had the Stapletons not left. Now, of course, that means God could have used somebody else. He would have, but... What that is saying is that God doesn't just drop a New Testament from the sky for them to read. We have to go. We have to give up decades of our lives and raise our children in the jungle so that people can hear the gospel. But that's the zealousness that we're supposed to have. That's the model that's given to us by our very own family that we know and, and love here. Romans 11 was Israel's future. It's vindication, Israel's future. God is faithful in Israel's future. The Jewish people continue to factor into God's plan. Paul is showing that he has not set aside his promises for Israel, and he has not failed. 
is faithful in Israel's future. So he's saying, hey, Gentiles, don't be prideful here because you're in. Because God has always been about saving Israel, and he will. And he will save those that are supposed to be saved in the remnant. And he will turn back because, and he gave the example of the tree. If natural branches of Jews were broken off so that you as a wild olive shoot could be grafted in, think about how much easier it will be to put back a natural branch as it was to put you. So don't be prideful. Don't be prideful. And that's where Adam showed us that God's ultimate glory as he's receiving is that through the rejection of the Jews, it opened the door for all of us to be saved. But by Gentiles being saved, it was causing Jews to be jealous and turn to Christ. And that by the Jews being saved, then other people were coming to faith. So God, in His, in his wisdom, that He ends chapter 11 by, um, in just a song of praise, is immeasurable. Listen to what He says in verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. When Paul gets to this part, he just stops. He just has to worship. He just has to thank God for what he's done. Chapters 9, 10, 11 are heavy on doctrine. I'm not going to spend any time really recapping the rest, 12 through 16. I'm going to give you the heads we're going to just hit really high points in the next maybe five to seven minutes because these are the things that we've just come out of studying. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to them. But then specifically next week, we're going to be discussing how we can apply these truths to our, to our daily life. Well, that's what he does. And chapters 12 through 16 is exhortation, the will of God being revealed. Chapters 12 was exhortation, the actions towards others. Write this down, actions towards others. This is where he talks about living as a believer. Our responsibility is to consecrate our bodies and submit ourselves to God to be transformed in our minds. Consecrate ourselves to God. And this is where Adam said, while being in the word doesn't necessitate or guarantee sanctification, not being in the word all but guarantees that you won't be sanctified. Remember that? If you're in the word, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to grow all the time. But if you're not in the Word, you won't grow. So the Word has to be crucial. This also talks about walking in humility and rejoicing in the midst of suffering. This is where it starts to get practical. So Romans 13 is exhortation, actions towards authority. This is where you go to talk about how we have the responsibility to submit to those who are in authority over us because God has ordained that they be over us. This is how we're to interact with those over us. So chapter 12, think, it's how I'm supposed to be interacting with other believers. Chapter 13, this is how I'm supposed to be acting with people in authority. Chapter 14 was exhortation, actions towards other believers in the sense of Christian liberties, Christian freedoms. Exhortation, actions towards other believers. This is where he was talking about liberty is available to all Christians, but unity trumps the liberty that we have. Unity trumps this. We are to expect diversity. There's going to be strong brothers. There's going to be weak brothers. But the stronger brother is the one who's willing to give up his freedoms for the sake of unity in the body. If you want to know more about the last few weeks that we've been discussing things such as drinking and and smoking and tattoos and all that stuff and things, are we free to do these things? 
Adam's teaching us that Scripture, yeah, you're free in Christ to do these things, but unity trumps freedom. So we have a responsibility, if we're going to be the stronger one, to be willing to give up these freedoms for the sake of unity. He doesn't try to minimize diversities in the faith either. Adam said he doesn't try to say, hey, you need to stop viewing these things this way and you all kind of grow into one. He says there are always going to be people with different consciences and different perspectives about issues in the church. Expect diversity. The strong brothers are the willing, ones willing to set aside their freedoms for unity. It also said we need to pursue doctrinal stability in order for us to be unified in the midst of disagreement. This is where Adam challenged us and said our beliefs about these things have to be founded in God's word and are not simply what we've been taught. We have to go back to God's word to know so that our minds can be renewed and transformed about these things. But we have to operate it out of, out of a pure conscience. So if we feel it's violating our conscience to do certain these things, don't do them. If you don't feel that it's violating your conscience because you're, you see that you're free in Christ to do them, then do them. However, the responsibility is that you're willing to give these up for the sake of unity. So if the church has people of both perspectives in it, then how much more careful should you be in making sure that you're creating unity and not disunity with the freedoms that you enjoy? So we hold to our convictions tightly, but we hold to our liberties loosely. Romans 15 was exhortation how the believer acts missionally. I'll write that down. Exhortation how the believer acts missionally. This was the responsibility of the strong brother seeking unity with the weaker brother. The strong brother has to act like Christ and welcome the weak and seek their needs over his own. So if you think that you're the strong brother as you've read through that, you have a responsibility to act like Christ who did not consider his own needs over those of others. And welcome the weak and seek their needs over your own. The strong has an obligation, as we learn, to bear with the weak and not to please himself. And Adam gave us a few things. He gave us the neighbor factor. Remember, what is the neighbor factor? It starts with a question, will this neighbor factor? Just a couple weeks ago. He's saying, will this offend my neighbor? Will this, enjoying this Christian liberty, offend my neighbor? Missional factor. Will it offend non-believers? Because there are non-believers that sometimes believe that doing certain things are not what Christians are supposed to do. So right or wrong, that perspective is there. Will this offend them? If so, we have a responsibility to set aside those freedoms. The master factor. Will it cause me to be enslaved by anything? Because if so, it's sin for us to be enslaved by that. We have to ask ourselves these things. Health factor. Will it cause me immediate harm physically? Legal factor. Will it cause me to violate the law? In Romans 13, we've already studied. We have to submit to the law that's over us. So we may be free to drink alcohol as Christians, but in our country, if you're under 21, you're not free. And scripturally, you're not free because it's against the law and it's against the submission to the authorities we're called to. So we have to ask ourselves these things. But the maturity of the church was seen in their commitment to the word in reaching the world, not enjoying their freedoms. So Paul is laying this out for this church in Rome, and he's calling us to, to recognize these things as well. And then lastly, finally, Romans 16 was exhortation, how the believer acts towards hostility. How the believer acts towards hostility. We want to be unified in diversity and missional in our efforts. And Adam said we must be intentional to welcome 
This is where we just learned last week we need to be intentional to welcome new servants as they come, as Paul was talking about, welcoming Phoebe and celebrating old servants. But we must also be diligent to watch because, like I said, false teaching and these things will come up from within. So we have a responsibility to know, to reckon, to yield these things true for us because we have to be diligent to watch. And lastly, we must be faithful to worship. The incredible plan unfolding through Romans leads someone to worship. It should. If you don't come out of studying the book of Romans, like Paul did, just thanking God for his great wisdom that he's orchestrated in the, in the history of redemption, thousands of years, then we may not know it fully enough in our hearts. We may not have reckoned it to be true in us, and we definitely haven't then yielded it. But the whole point of this is so that we can contend for the faith. So I know that this has been a ton of information, a lot more on the front end because it was so long ago and not so much here in the last part. But that's for you to be able to join me in going back over this. So I don't know where we're going to go after next week after we seek to apply this. Um, we may be studying in Genesis. We may be going somewhere else that Adam believes that we should go at that time. But don't be like me on most weeks and just write notes, stick them in your Bible, and say, yeah, I remember that time we went through Romans. I remember that time we went through Jude. I couldn't tell you a thing about it. I remember faith and contend, and that's about it. Or don't be like, hey, I remember we went through Jonah. I remember Jonah wasn't as awesome as I used to think he was. And that'd be the only thing you took away from Jonah. Like, we have a responsibility to contend for the faith. I work around personally. Remember, Adam says, we don't have to know Mormon doctrine to, to interact with Mormons. We can study the truth. But the reality is, is that I work around four to five Mormons right now. And this is at Chick-fil-A. So the reality of even just Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses walking up to your doors, we have a responsibility to contend for the faith. But as, as Paul and Adam warned us too, is that a lot of this stuff that's going to disunify the church too isn't going to be as obvious. It's going to come up from within. So how are we supposed to guard one another from from straying off the, the path if we don't know these things in our heart. So hear me as one of you, and, and aside from all just the, the information that I've overloaded you with, is that this is a call for all of us to, to take seriously what Adam teaches. He takes the time to lead us and shepherd us. Can you imagine if, if, if he moved away or something happened to him and that responsibility was left to you? Like Think about it. If that was you, if that was you, Ben, or if that was you, Toby, or you, Jesse, like, You've got that responsibility right now. That's the responsibility he feels every week. And it drives him to McDonald's every week to study for hours to bring forth the words so that we can come to Romans to put our notes in our Bibles and forget about them. So let's not be that. Let's be people that respond to God's word, that are doers of the word, not hearers only. Let's contend for the faith. And let's be active in studying and re reminding ourselves these truths so that we come prepared even next week and say, okay, here's the the fire hydrant of information that we've gotten in the last 16 weeks, and especially last week, how can we make this applicable in our lives? How can we walk away and be different? How can we make sure that we choose not to walk away the same? But as we said, Romans should faithfully um, and naturally lead us to worship. So I've, I've asked the, the guys to come and, and lead us kind of in a last song, and it's the song that we all know. It's called Mighty to Save, but Really think through it. Think through it like Paul did in the last 11 chapters. This is the great wisdom of God. He is mighty to save. He has given us salvation through Christ. 
if it doesn't lead you to genuinely worship you, worship him from your heart, then just use this time to pray, God, open up my heart. Open up my heart to see to what great lengths you went for me. Open up my heart to see the price that Christ had to pay. Because in essence, the, the holiness of God was traveling, just overtaking the whole world. The wrath of God was pouring out. Yet at the same time, the love of God was racing alongside of it and cuts it off at Calvary. Cuts it off and says, for those in Christ, it goes no further. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So Christ is here. Calvary, it was poured out on him. If you find yourself in him, if you have faith, that's the way that it's received. You can be found righteous. You can be found standing before God one day. You can have peace with God. So there's promises that we need to hold on to in Romans 8. Let's go back to them. Let's know them. And let's, uh, let's honor our leaders, especially Adam, by being responsive, responsive to the word. Um, so let's pray. Let's sing. Father, thank you for this time. God, I know that it's just so much information to try to cover in one, one Sunday. Lord, I thank you for the last almost half of the year that we've been in Romans. God, we know for other churches they've been in it for years, up to 20 years. God, we know that there is so much depth in this book that we did not get to cover going at this pace, but we, we did it so that we could have a great um, overview understanding of this book so that we could come prepared to contend for the faith, that we could be prepared to share the gospel with our friends and family. Lord, in the places where we know that we're still weak, that we need more um, knowledge to travel from our head to our heart, Lord, please grant grace for us as we do our active part, as we rely on the Spirit to do our active part, to dive in your word, to, to cut it up and to, to chew on it and to meditate on it and to really feast on it throughout the weeks. Lord, we thank you for the example that you've left us in Scripture. God, again, we're thankful for the example that you've left us in the Stapleton family. We're thankful that your power is seen in the fact that your word trumps the darkness. And that just as they cut that rope, signifying the word making its way into that dark village, God, we're thankful that at some point your word has made its way into our hearts in the same way. So God, may you be glorified and lifted up high. We love you so much. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.